when you're faced with a problem, such as figuring out what this data is telling you, why you're being recommended a certain movie or a certain mm -hmm. product on Amazon or whatnot, don't just take the first answer that comes to mind. Dig in deeper. Ask who has a hold of the data, who sponsored this yeah, study, what, their motives are, right? what are their motives, what's yeah. their agenda. Go beyond the surface. And having that curiosity and that inclination towards deep inquiry is mm -hmm. what is most necessary to become a data scientist. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air, where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Strashny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. All right. Hi, LinkedIn. I am super excited here. This is Kate. I'm here with Debbie or Deborah Berivichez. Really excited to go live on LinkedIn today. And I'd like to introduce you to Debbie. She is the chief data scientist at Metis. She is the VP at Kaplan, a physicist, a TV host, an awesome person, a great person to know. So thank you so much, Debbie, for being here and welcome to the LinkedIn live show. Thank you, Kate, for having me here. And this is super exciting. Hi, everyone. All right. So today we're going to talk about data science and critical thinking. And I prepared a couple of questions that I have for Deborah. But if you're tuning in now live, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to address them here. I think before we begin, if you can just tell us a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Sure. I'll keep it brief. So I grew up in Mexico City in a community that discouraged uh, young girls from pursuing a career in science and STEM in general. And so because of that, I growing up, I learned to hide my curiosity and my love for math and physics specifically, which was my passion. And so when it came time to choosing a subject for college, mm -hmm. I chose philosophy because I was told that you could ask questions on end about where we come from, what's the universe about, and all of that. And two years into the BA, I realized that my hunger to know physics and math and how the universe works in more depth was not going to go away. Yeah. So I applied to schools in the U.S. It was a challenge because I knew that in Mexico, colleges cost about eight times less than in the U.S., and my family couldn't have paid for me to get an education in the U.S. So I was very lucky that Brandeis University, a school in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. wrote back to me and said, if you apply for this scholarship that we give to two international students per year, it's called the WIN Scholarship, we, you may be able to join us here. We'll pay for your whole, entire education. So I was wow. very lucky. I won the scholarship. I left Mexico City. I had never seen the snow. And I arrived in Boston <laughs> in the middle of the winter. And I had the courage on my first semester to take a very generic astronomy course. Okay. And I befriended the teaching assistant, who was a graduate student from India by the name of Rupesh. And Rupesh and I became very good friends. And he said to me, he believed in me for the first time. Somebody actually truly saw that I had my curiosity and my perseverance were gifts that I had and that were should not be wasted. And he basically uh, told me, you're not the typical student that just wants to get an A in the homework and pass the course. 
you really are curious about how, you know, classical mechanics works and quantum mechanics and all that. So one day I was walking in Harvard Square with Rupesh and I basically looked at him and I got teary eyed and I said, Rupesh, I just don't want to die without trying. I don't want to die without trying to do physics. So his advisor, the head of the physics department at the time, Dr. Wardle, called me into his office and handed me a book, which at the time was a Martian language for me. It was called Div, Grad, and Curl, Vector Calculus in Three Dimensions. And he handed me that book and he said, somebody else did this before you. Many years ago, Ed Witten, the father of string theory, did this and switched from history to physics at Brandeis. If you're able to master the, the material of this book, in two months, that is, study it during the summer, then we'll let you skip through the first two years of the physics major. Oh, wow. So Rupesh decided to devote his entire summer to mentoring me and tutoring me. And I tell the story because I always wanted to compensate Rupesh and pay him for all his tutoring and all that he did for me. And he said to me that when he was growing up in India, in Darjeeling, like the tea, there was an old man who used to climb up to his small town and teach him math, English, and the tabla, the musical instrument. And the old man refused to ever get compensated Mm -hmm. financially. And he said, the only way you could ever pay me back is if you do this with someone else in the world. Mm. And that's how my mission in life began to inspire and encourage other young people, especially young women who, like myself, feel attracted to science or technology or engineering, but who for some reason feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. So I finished uh, at Brandeis and then I pursued uh, my PhD in physics at Stanford University in California. And then I moved to New York and I did two postdoctoral fellowships in applied math and physics at Columbia and NYU. And here I am. (laughs) Wow, that's an amazing story. And I actually wanted to go back for a second and ask, why do you think you were discouraged early on? What was the story there? It's unfortunate, but I still think the stigma exists. I actually met a woman from uh, India yesterday. She was saying she lives in the Silicon Valley. And she was telling me how surprised she was to find that still amongst young women who she mentors, Mm -hmm. there's still a bunch of parents that try to dissuade their young daughters from studying and pursuing careers in STEM because they say it's going to be more difficult to have a social, normal life, or it's going to be difficult for you to have a family in the future or to get a job. And And, you know, I was told from a very young age that, first of all, I had to be a genius if I wanted to be a physicist. And I knew I wasn't. You are. And and also that I had to, uh, you know, choose between following a normal lifestyle and getting married and having kids than between that or becoming a STEM or a physicist at the time. And so it's a very hard choice for a young person to make. Right. And I wanted to ask, well, actually, first, yes, Jamie, Jamie asks if this is going to be available later because he has an urgent Pilates class. So <laughs> go, go do your Pilates. This will be Good available after. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, so you did take that path and how did it impact you socially and are you able to live the life that you wanted back then? I must say it was really hard for me, especially when I got to Stanford, because then it was no longer a joke, so to speak. It was no longer the side thing that I did as a BA and I went to Boston and I came back to my family. It was very serious. And I was actually competing for the first time with kids 
who had been dreaming of doing physics since the age of five, whose parents had were academicians, maybe of them, who had encouraged them to join the math Olympiads and all that. And when they would call home with, say, a normal failure from not passing an exam or something, their parents would be like, don't worry, you can do it. And they were very encouraging. Whereas yeah. my parents would be very nice, of course, but worried about me. And they, they would mm-hmm. say things such as, we told you, this was not for you. Okay, told great. You so. It's, it's yeah. time yes. for you to just pack your bags and come back home so that mm-hmm. you can follow a more traditional path. So I think it definitely made me feel like I wouldn't be able to enjoy a normal or I, I want to say more traditional the socially lifestyle. normal yeah I know exactly and it, it took me a while but I even though my mother said no boys would ever want to marry me <laughs> if I studied physics it did take a while that's funny but I did end up getting married so for the ladies out there who are listening who want to do physics you will get married yes <laughs> it is possible <laughs> All right. Okay. So now you are at Metis, your chief data scientist there. So I'd love to hear more about what is Metis and what do you do there? And then just a reminder for those that tune in live, you know, they'd be here to take your questions as well. So please go ahead and ask away. Absolutely. So Metis, M-E-T-I-S, is a company owned by Kaplan, the large education company. And basically, we're a data science training company. We operate in two pillars. One is we have physical in-presence boot camps all over the U.S. We train people in New York, Seattle, Chicago, and San Francisco. And we train people in 12 weeks with the most basic and also advanced tools to become data scientists themselves. And then we help find jobs for them. And we also have a live online courses that are either pre boot camp for people who are not yet ready to take the boot camp. And our second pillar is our corporate training, mm. which means we go to corporations, technology companies or financial companies, healthcare, et cetera, that want to train a part of their workforce in a particular aspect of data science. And mm. we do it in house. So it could be visualization. It could be big data techniques. And whatnot. So we design the curriculum, we customize a lot of it, and we come and train their workforce for upskilling. Okay, so this 12-week program, I wanted to ask, is this for yeah. people who never done data science or is this somebody who maybe has a statistics background or math or something like that? Yeah, so we get all kinds of backgrounds applying to join our bootcamp. And we try very hard not to accept somebody who we feel is just going to feel discouraged or that they don't have the right skills to begin a bootcamp because I must say it is an intense program. Mm -hmm. So most people do have a little bit of a background in mathematics or statistics or something, but we've actually had great success with, there was one person in San Francisco who didn't even have a college degree. Oh, wow. Yes. Believe it or not, he was the first one in his class in his cohort to get a job. Wow. So it was pretty, it was impressive. That's we have cool. people with backgrounds in marketing and music and advertising and they've made it. At the same time, we also do take maybe 15 to 20% of our attendees have PhDs or masters mm. in a very quantitative field. And that does not mean they may have advantages in understanding some of the more sophisticated mathematical aspects of data science, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be super eager to jump at like any job that they get offered and and all that. So we get the full range, I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
We actually did get a question from Jagruti asking, should people go for the paid courses when there are some free courses available like edX or, you know, free resources online? I guess, is there something special about companies like Metis? Do Mm -hmm. they provide something additionally? It's a huge difference. So first of all, yes, there are tons of free courses available. You can research and see that the success rates and the completion rates for these courses is actually quite low Hmm. because they're free. A lot of people take them more as like, I'll try to complete it. I'll try to follow it and do the homework, but they may not put in the time and effort that it requires. We in our boot camps require full time presence. I mean, you're going to be there. We have a ratio of one full data science instructor, senior data scientist per 12 or 14 students. Oh, wow. That's on, intimate. On the That's good. So we typically have two instructors plus TAs. Mm-hmm. So it's a, there's a lot more handholding. You will have a whole community of people and you're dedicated for 12 weeks to solving data science projects and problems from the community and all that. So it's really intense and, and, and you get at the end of it a guaranteed portfolio with yeah. at least five projects that you've built. Mm-hmm. That you can sell yourself with here on LinkedIn and go on interviews and yeah. all that. So we believe the success rates are much higher when you put in that kind of time and work mm-hmm. into it. And then, yeah, so speaking still of Metis, you also developed some of the instructional materials, right? The curriculum for, yes. for the school. So I did want to ask, how difficult is that? And what are some of the challenges? Because I guess it's such a quickly growing field and things are changing so fast. Yeah. I guess you have to keep adapting and updating it? It's a great question. First of all, we have a problem with the definition, right? Mm -hmm. Data scientist means very different things to different companies, different fields. Within data science, people debate whether people should know Python or Python and R or do visualization in this or what kind of stack is necessary for somebody to call themselves a data scientist and Mm -hmm. be fluent in the language of of data science. So building a curriculum that is general enough that is going to encompass most of the topics and, and have the breadth that one requires mm-hmm. for somebody to be able to solve most data science problems, at least in the beginning, is difficult if what you also want is to develop critical thinking skills and you want depth in right. the curriculum. So I must say we have an incredible team of senior data scientists who come from all different backgrounds and different industry jobs prior to coming to Metis. And so we have like a peer-reviewed curriculum updating where we ask somebody whose expertise is say SVD or any visualization technique to update the lectures on that topic. But then they get reviewed by their peers Mm -hmm. and we get a lot of opinions on whether we should include this or that and whatnot. But then students also get to give us a lot of feedback. So after years of developing the curriculum and getting lots of feedback on it, we feel that we have a pretty good grip Mm -hmm. on what the industry standards are. Companies that hire our students, our alumni are also telling us like, hey, you know, you should teach them more SQL and this and that. And so we were kind of right on target, Mm -hmm. but it's a constantly changing and evolving field, like you say. So we got to keep updating things all the time. Yeah. And then we have a question here from Caleb. In terms of what are the course content, how much is the bootcamp, is it available online? 
how valuable is the certification? So I'm thinking the answer will probably be the website that they can check out or... Yes, you, you can check the website and even uh, take our admissions test to see if you're ready to take the bootcamp rather than joining one of our pre-bootcamp courses. Everything is at thisismetis.com. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I see Jason's on here. So hi, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you joining here. Okay. So... You mentioned that the definition of a data scientist varies across different industries, companies. My question is, when can you call yourself a data scientist? Just from your perspective, yeah. right? I think the answer to this, that question is very much dependent on what type of field you're going to enter. There isn't one skill except for perhaps programming, knowing uh, some basic mathematics like linear algebra, statistics, etc., and knowing how to communicate the insights that you gain. Mm -hmm. But besides these three more sort of open-ended skills, I think one can call themselves a data scientist when they're able to make a living out of being a professional data scientist. I think very much like an actor can call themselves an actor, not if they're just doing it as a hobby, right. even though they're still acting and whatnot. The moment you're able to explain insights and gather information that other people cannot gain without your skills, that's the moment where I think you have become a true data scientist. That's a great answer. I never considered that one for some reason. People always start listing out the skills that you need yeah. to know, but you're totally right. As long as you can be hired and provide yeah. value as a data scientist, then you're a data scientist. Yeah. Like I share with you, part of my background is also in, in Wall Street. And yeah. we were quite agnostic in terms of the programming language, the platform, the stack that the person would use. As mm -hmm. long as you can solve the problem, solve the problem at hand yeah. and give me an original insight that I cannot get through an automated platform or something else, then you're a data scientist, right. basically. Great. And where, where do you think the role is going? You know, five to 10 years, is it going to be the same types of skill set and same, I guess, activities that a data scientist takes part in? I think the field is changing vastly and very rapidly. I think there's a lot more automation of the most basic tools. So things like linear regression and classification algorithms and whatnot are being automated so that people can just upload a bunch of data into a platform. The yeah. platform will even choose the parameters mm. and the algorithms and will just kind of spit out insights. So we're going to need more translators of what the insights, yeah. what the machine is telling us. That does not necessarily mean that these people are going to understand the intricate details behind the mm -hmm. algorithms or be able to create new algorithms for higher level problems. So there's going to be a lot more of, of that. We're going to need, uh, you know, more translational or, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, connectors or interpretation yeah. of the data and the algorithm at hand. At the same time, I think that the more sophisticated skills that come with big data and deep learning that are difficult to interpret for us humans in yeah. certain instances, the more obscure algorithms, we're going to need experts in that, that mm -hmm. focus on that field. They're going to be very specialized and they're going to be needed in different domains. Right. So there's going to be a lot more of domain knowledge mm -hmm. required to operate as data scientists in different fields. Yeah, I can definitely see that. 
Okay, shifting a little bit, Alfredo has a question on data science teams and how many people you think make a reasonable data science team. I know that would vary across industries and companies, but would love to hear your thoughts. I think that's a great question and it totally depends on how close or how far you are on the scale of a data engineering versus data science project. I say that because data engineering, when one is required to design a database and manage a large database, for example, and participate with the stakeholders, that could require a very large team that uh, sort of has access to different parts of the data or gives access to a different group to different parts of the data and whatnot. When it comes to the actual data science, it's really domain dependent. But my experience, which is limited, but it has been with groups of maybe five to 10 people and no larger than that. Mm-hmm. That has been sort of the ideal point where, where, you know, you have enough communication and interaction and collaboration within the team. But at the same time, you're able to have a multifunctional team where somebody's just in charge of cleaning the data and the other person of trying different algorithms and the other person of visualizing the, the results, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. And people keep asking for links. So it's thisismetis.com, right? That's right. This is Metis. T-H-I-S-I-S-M-E-T-I-S.com. This is Metis. A lot of ISs. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> and Abhishek, is, oh no, not Abhishek. Somebody else is asking a question. Saurav is asking if there is any scope for launching this course in India. Well, we do have our courses that are pre-bootcamp, are live online. So you could join from your home anywhere in the world. As for our bootcamp, we don't have plans yet to launch it in India. But who knows if you reach out to us and we get enough interest, Mm -hmm. there's definitely an open door for a lot of collaborative projects. We actually are teaching the machine learning module for Dublin Business School right now. So we are open to collaborating with different institutions all over the world. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Okay, so just wanted to shift a little bit and talk about your role in kind of promoting STEM careers to women, right? I know you're a big supporter of bringing in more females into the space, and you alluded to some of this when you introduced yourself, but wanted you to kind of share with us what's driving you and why do you want more women in this space? I I see this as a two uh, separate questions. One is what drives me to encourage and inspire more women, and the second one is why? Because it's a valid question, right? So the first one, what moves me is that I myself, like I shared with all of you, was discouraged from pursuing a career in science and it put a set of obstacles in my path to becoming a physicist and later a data scientist that on the one hand, they made me stronger, but on the other hand, they probably limited the kind of opportunities that I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people, or especially women, to have or minorities to, go, to have to go through that. So I want to really level the the playing field and everything I do in my life is trying to be a role model, whether it's with a TV show or AdMedis, collaborating with women-led STEM organizations and all of that is to encourage more women to get into the field. The second one of why is, first of all, I think the best gift you can give to anyone in life and in the world is an education. A quantitative education and the ability to solve problems and the ability to have critical thinking beyond what's taught to us in school and et cetera 
is such an incredible gift that I wanted everybody to partake in this incredible joy of discovering new things. On the other hand, if we think from an economical and industry perspective, I believe that lots of problems in the world are because our algorithms are accidentally or sometimes on purpose biased because they are tested with a population of, say, only white males of a certain age. We can see it with political uh, surveys as well, like, oh, 50% of the audience is voting for this. But then when you realize that they they did the survey at a very like a, concentrated, yeah, concentrated uh, yeah. convent, Republican convention, then you'll realize, okay, that's why they voted that way. So we really want to try to avoid that. In fact, there are examples in industry, such as when the airbags for the safety in cars were designed, where there were no women in the team. And sadly, they were released to the market. And unfortunately, many women were getting injured while driving because the sizing and the thought of it was built with only men as examples of drivers. And so once they they included and they had a more inclusive vision of what the problem was, then that got fixed. That's a typical example, but there are many others. And it wasn't necessarily intentional, right? Exactly. just they didn't think. Yeah. Which... It happens a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not intentional, but yes. Let me see. There was another question here from Shubham. What kind of companies can we target to start the initial job in data science? Because a lot of them require experience or industry knowledge. So is there any recommendations you can give to folks who don't necessarily have the industry background, but would like to become a data scientist? I think that question is best answered by saying it's a, a two-pronged approach. First, you have to know yourself, and then you have to get to know the companies that do what you want to do and your best skill that. For the first one, I recommend doing the boot camp or getting acquainted with all the different algorithms, techniques, skills that you must have in order to work as a data scientist. Because even if you have a master's or a PhD in a quantitative field, you still want to be able to translate those quantitative skills into the lingo and the techniques that are used in the field. Once you acquire that, you'll get a much better idea of who's doing what, what kind of companies and what kind of titles are what you're best suited for. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, when we do uh, our career effort, which is amazing, we have an, an incredible careers team that works very detailed, uh, in a detailed manner with our alumni to see what kinds of companies are going to be better suited for them. So it is not necessarily the name of the company. Most of the times I advise my mentees to mm-hmm. look for companies that have the right style for them, mentoring style. So for example, if you work well in a very large group rather than individually and alone, if you work well with data that's unstructured and you're comfortable with a lot of uncertainties rather than data that's super clean and it's just all numbers, you know, you'll get a feel for that. And once you know that, you'll be able to distinguish the kind of industries and types of companies where you're going to thrive. And I always tell people to be bold. Don't wait for a company or something to get to you or to find you. 
just do cold emailing, cold calling, just reach out to companies and tell them, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And can I get, I believe that I have the opportunity to help you improve your PL or change your model and make your business better. This is how. Yeah. Can I talk to you about it? And most people will be open to talking to you. I agree. Don't wait for permission. Just exactly. go for it. Just yes. do it. All right. I have a difficult question for you, for Fadil. Yes. All right. After machine learning, design thinking, artificial intelligence, deep learning, what do you predict will come next that will require learning? Fadil wants to get ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that we're probably talking a bit of semantics here because I think the number of applications in AI and machine learning is going to grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. So while we have the AI winter, right, and now we're thriving a little bit more, yet we really have very few sophisticated AI applications nowadays. And even in the field of robotics or the Internet of Things, we're only accessing insights from, I don't know, maybe 10, this is an arbitrary number, I'm guessing 10 or 15% of the data. We really need to get ahead. So for me, the growth is going to come in applying AI to many fields where we currently don't think even applying it. Medicine is, you know, we have IBM Watson is being quite successful at predicting certain diseases, but the management uh, of uh, data in hospitals, even uh, uh, surgically being able to do surgeries remotely yeah. uh, from experts, like all of that and, and, and predict, uh, you know, diseases by looking at uh, hundreds of thousands of, of MRI records, for example, you know, yeah. in the healthcare, it, the business is going to be huge and we're only seeing, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Similarly, uh, in education, there's going to be a, a whole transformation, in my opinion, of how we learn what types of intelligence we consider intelligence here, right? And not only the mathematical logic way of thinking and how can machines help us mm-hmm. uh, to create art, to mimic certain styles, to have psychological intuition and you know, all that. So maybe the Freuds of the world and the Kandinsky's of the world in the future will be aided by computers. Yeah. And so I think that's where the growth is going to come. Yeah, I'm I'm especially inspired with the medicine and the surgical aspects of it. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere that the machines are so much more like they're really able to predict cancer and things like this so so much like with so much speed and accuracy that exactly because they can compare hundreds yeah. of thousands of yeah. records where the doctor can look at it and say okay i think i remember yeah. a couple of these and yes. it's just not always as accurate yes so we rely helpful. on our memories which are faulty and yeah. at best i uh, guess it's just the privacy yeah. issues to get through to make more progress in that space more questions back to the program. A few people ask the same question, so I'll bring it up. Can the program be done 100% online? I think you mentioned that there is an aspect of it, right? Yeah, so our bootcamp has to be done in person. We do have live online courses that are pre-bootcamp, where we teach either Python and the intro mathematics before joining the bootcamp. But so far, we truly believe that if you want to invest in becoming a data scientist, you should have some form of in-presence experience. Having said that, we are working on more online opportunities where we're going to have a hybrid 
situation where you're going to get a lot of content that's delivered online through videos and lectures that are delivered through an instructor, but also there's going to be an interaction remotely so that you don't have to travel to one of our local bootcamp centers. And through that interaction, things are going to change in this different model, but we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in that area. So we'll get there very soon. Yes. Going back to the female topic a little bit, uh, we have a more of a comment that I wanted to see if you agree with from Jagruti, who says that, you know, she agrees with what you're saying. And even if girls are allowed to pursue what they want, their parents tend to be reluctant to invest the money because it's easier to send their daughters to do kind of what doesn't cost as much as, you know, like a physics program. So thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I think it's an unfortunate consequence of what... Carol Dweck, who's a a very famous and wonderful psychologist at Stanford, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book called The Mindset. And I highly encourage people to read it because it talks about two kinds of mindset, the fixed one and the evolving one. Mm -hmm. And basically, she says girls are sometimes more educated, more in the fixed mindset. So they're told they have a certain limited amount of intelligence. You're either smart or you're not that smart. You're Mm -hmm. good at these few things. It encourages girls to not take as many risks to, say, take a course where they're not going to be naturally great at in the beginning and all of that. And so it keeps women sort of focused on a more narrow set of skills that they can develop where they already feel they're good at. Mm -hmm. Whereas boys are educated in this evolving mentality. Intelligence is not limited. It's neuroplasticity is real. You can become very good at things that you're initially not that great at, take risks, even if your grade suffers for it and whatnot. And so boys tend to be much more risk prone and develop the skills needed for STEM careers. Because if you think about it, science and engineering is all about embracing failure. You're never going to get it right the first time, especially in data science. You need a lot of resilience, a lot of grit to be able to get up after you fall, uh, meaning you reach an obstacle. And so whether it's this attitude towards financial investment or emotional investment in girls pursuing these type of careers, I think we have to combat that and Mm -hmm. show examples of how many incredible successful women we have around that went for it and developed these skills. Yeah, we have a few comments coming in that, yeah, it's a great book. And that John says that, I, I think you're trying to say growth mindset. So there's growth a fixed mindset. one and growth thank mindset. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So you've been with Metis for how long now? Almost three years. Three years. Okay, so you've seen, I guess, the different types of students signing up. Do you see more females coming into this space? I must say I do see more females joining our boot camps. However, it's still a struggle when it comes to the admissions process. We do see, and this is all anecdotal. I haven't done a, a, like an analysis. A, a, a vast analysis of it, but I do feel that women are less courageous sometimes in the beginning in saying, okay, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to, you know, take the admissions test. And I would encourage young women, especially to take that risk and to believe in themselves more. Mm-hmm than they, they already do, because it's sometimes that little confidence boost that is all that is needed in order to succeed. And once they get a hold of the data and they have the support of their community and they see the incredible power that they have by gaining 
these skills and what they can do with them that is just, they skyrocket very quickly and very powerfully. Great. Yes. Thank you for that. So Debbie, I think we're running up on time, but before we wrap up, I do want to see if you have anything else you want to add, like what can people do today, right? Who want to get into the data scientist space? What what are your recommendations for them? What's your advice? I think encourage your intellectual resilience and encourage yourself to be a critical thinker. So intellectual resilience, what I mean by that is try new things and don't give up because you feel like you're failing, so to speak. So when I try to learn Python, for example, I went through all kinds of online programs and books. And of course, the minute I would try to code something and it didn't work, I would get discouraged. But the important thing is that is to know that even the most incredible renowned experts feel that way at some point and about some aspect within data science. So keep going because a world of success is made up of people not for whom things come easily, but for whom it's a habit to get up after facing obstacles and small failures. So definitely intellectual resilience and grit, something that I encourage you to experiment with. Go and try to learn Python in many different ways that you find and see which one works for you. The second one is critical thinking. When you're faced with a problem, such as figuring out what this data is telling you, why you're being recommended a certain movie or a certain Mm -hmm. product on Amazon or whatnot, don't just take the first answer that comes to mind. Dig in deeper. Ask who has a hold of the data, who sponsored this yeah, study. What, their motives are, right? what are their motives? What's yeah. their agenda? Go beyond the surface. And having that curiosity and that inclination towards deep inquiry is mm-hmm. what is most necessary to become a data scientist. That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on this LinkedIn live show. And thank you, everybody, for joining. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.